the Senior Blessing Night this coming Wednesday. And then also a reminder, if you're doing Impact, you know who you are. Meeting, training, after today, um, here at 1230 in the Outback, as always. So um, be here for that. And uh, I really appreciate uh, Mrs. Ronslaven speaking last week. I got to hear her message um, on recording and did a great job. She did awesome. And I was at Pine Cove with my son on a father-son weekend. And anyone gone there with their dad in years past, father-son, father-daughter, they have all kinds of weird combinations. Um, so they did this thing called Buffalo Hunt. It's a game that they have the dads play with their sons. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But they said, we're going to play Buffalo Hunt. And it's a game where the dads, um, we kind of get dressed up and the sons get kind of dressed up. And we, they put all the dads in this like mud pit, sand and mud pit. And we're supposed to get all muddy and get all like ready for battle. And so we get all muddy. We put rubber bands, a rubber band on each, on each wrist and also on each ankle. And the goal of, um, a buffalo hunt is for all the sons to march up the hill and storm the dads and try to get the rubber bands off of our hands, our wrists and our ankles. And so it's like this big mud wrestling match with fathers and sons, right? And so as you can imagine, our, our sons are just like chomping at the bit to do this. And so they have Braveheart music playing in the background. And it's like real inspirational. They have a guy who's one of the, the college leaders. He walks out and he gives like the speech that William Wallace gives, you know, as before they go into battle. And the funniest part was um, he's giving his speech and, and I raise my hand. I'm like, but we could die. That's what it says in the movie, right? And he's like, all right, come with me and you may die. Stay home and you'll live, right? At least a while. He gives the whole speech. And then they storm the hill, and um, and we just, it's like fathers and sons just wrestling in the mud and going crazy. And so there was that fun element of, of Pine Cove, but then there was also um, the real cool spiritual part of it, and I just felt like my son and I just bonded, like really, really um, cool, and so that was really awesome. And then um, this morning, see, normally I go to the 815 service um, because my wife and kids come later, and so this morning my son gets up early and he goes, Daddy. I want to go to church with you. And I was like, oh, sweet. This is awesome. Like our bonding from last weekend is translated into this weekend. Now he wants to come to church with me. So that's really cool. And so we're sitting in the main service up there. And I'm just so proud as a dad thinking that all this like spiritual stuff's happening in my son. And he's just so like wanting it. And it's just so wanting to um, hear Gary's message and so on. And so in the middle of Gary's message today, um, Gary's like getting real intense and getting real passionate. And then Landon just leans over to me and he goes, daddy. Do you know that they put MSG in certain foods? <clears throat> so my balloon just totally bursts. God is not doing anything in my son's life at all. And then he said, but I don't think Pringles have MSG. And I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty sure Pringles are like all MSG. That's all it is is MSG, right? So, um, so yeah, so I guess we'll, we'll keep praying for my son. Yes, um, he, he, he's got a thing for Pringles right now. So, um, I want to do a quick survey. Just raise your hand quickly if, um, I want to see how many of you guys, how many of you guys actually go to the main service before you come here? Raise your hand real high. Um, I'm just trying to get a feel for when I'm discussing something that happens up there, how many of you actually know what I'm talking about? So maybe like a third of you go to the main service before you come down here to the Outback. So, um, what we're discussing today will actually tie in a bit to what we discussed in the main service this morning. 
And so we're, we are in uh, Revelation still, and Revelation chapter, so go ahead and turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and if you remember, I'll give you a quick review. Revelation is written by the, uh, the Apostle John, and he had a vision. Where'd that vision take place? <clears throat> On an island. Yeah, what's it called? I'm asking you what's it called. The island of Patmos. So they tried to kill John. Um, unbelievers tried to kill John because of his faith. They tried to boil him in hot oil, which was somehow unsuccessful. Not sure how that happened. But um, but they tried to boil him alive in hot oil. It didn't, didn't make it work. So he um, was exiled at this point to the island of Patmos uh, off the coast of, uh, of Turkey. And, uh, and while he was there, he saw this vision, this vision of Jesus. And this vision is what you see in the first three chapters of Revelation. And this is Jesus' message to seven churches in that part of the world, in that part of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. We talked about uh, the church at Ephesus. Um, if you remember the church at Ephesus, their struggle was they had right belief. They believed the right things, but they did not love people well. They didn't love the unbelieving world well, but they had right beliefs. They just had did not love people well. Then there was a church at Smyrna. And this is a church, it's one of the only churches that Jesus does not rebuke when he writes the letter to them. He actually just gives them encouragement, and he's encouraging them to stay faithful all the way to the end because they're being persecuted for their faith. And he warns them and says, many of you are going to die for your faith. And so Christ encourages them to, to be faithful in the midst of their persecution. Now today we are talking about a church in a place called Pergamum. And this church has the opposite problem of Ephesus. Ephesus was, was right beliefs but no love. Pergamum is the exact opposite where it's, they have some good deeds but they have bad doctrine. These are the ones that are like loving and compassionate and they're friendly to you, but then they also have bad beliefs and bad doctrine. And so um, I think this is especially important for our going seniors because you're going to be pulled in our culture. You're going to be pulled and tempted towards our culture um, as, you, as you begin to be tempted to compromise for your faith, um, in your faith. And you're going to be, um, in our culture especially, especially today, this is so valid for our culture today. You're going to be tempted to, um, in an effort to be loving and compassionate, you're going to be tempted to embrace sin. And this was the struggle that was happening in Pergamum. And I'll remind you, um, if you go to the map of this, uh, where these churches are located, uh, Pergamon is how they pronounce it in um, more of a, of a Greek pronunciation of it. But the furthest north city there, almost on the coast, this is where, this is all on the western coast of Turkey. And I told you this a few weeks ago, but this part of the world was once the center of the church, but now it is the least churched country on the face of the earth. Modern-day Turkey has 74 million people, but only 3,500 Christians. I have no, any math nerds in the room? You know who you are. So I can't do the percentage on that, but 74 million people and three and a half thousand Christians. That would be, I mean, TBC is about 3,000 on a Sunday. So take 70, that's like maybe uh, three times the state of Texas as far as population goes. And then there's 3,000 Christians in the entire country. Now to show you how 
stark the contrast is, the least church city in the U.S. is Portland. And 42% of the people in Portland say they have no religious affiliation. You say, what are you? They would just say, I'm nothing, or I'm an atheist, or I'm agnostic. That's how they'd respond. So even still, that's the, that's the least church city in the U.S. But it's still, 42% is a big number, but there's still 58% that would say that they believe something. They have some religion. But in Turkey, 74 million people, 3,500 of them are Christians. And I say this to you because um, my goal this morning is to scare us a little bit, to let us know that um, this can happen where you and I live. We are not immune from this kind of thing. This was once the center of the church in that day. And now look at where um, that area has gone to. And so look at Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 12 starting off. And it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him, that's Jesus, who has the sharp two-edged sword. So we'll come back to this image. They're painting a picture for us of who Jesus is here. But I want to I want to tell you a little bit about, about the city of Pergamum first. I've got a, a picture up here on the screen of modern-day Pergamum, the ruins of an amphitheater, and also looking at the coast here um, of Pergamum. And it's a beautiful area, but you'll see it's really high up off the water. And this is important because Alexander the Great stored large amounts of gold here because if you know anything about military, it's always better to be up high if you're going to defend your position. It's harder to climb up the mountain while you're taking fire or whatever's happening. Um, and so this is a place where um, Alexander stored large amounts of gold there in the city of Pergamum. And it's also a place where the rich dwelled because it had this fortress-like quality to it because it was so high up. And we see the same kind of thing today. So if you were to go anywhere in the U.S., usually a house up on a hill is the more expensive house, not because of fear of, of people invading their property, but just because they get a cool view, right? I went to California about a month ago, and there was this one house in Santa Barbara, like up on this hill, this mansion up on a hill, just high perched above, and you know that's the most expensive house around because it's high up. It just is. But back in that day, it was high up because they're trying to defend their position, and it's a place where it'd be difficult for someone to invade. And so there was also this huge library uh, with 200,000 books um, on parchment paper in the city of Pergamum. And you guys may have heard of a man named Mark Antony. And when I show you this picture, I mean this one, not this one over here, all right? So the one that liked Cleopatra, not the one that liked J-Lo, all right? There's a difference here. And so, um, so Mark Antony was a Roman general, and he actually gave this library of 200,000 books, watch this, he gave this library to Cleopatra as a wedding gift. Isn't that romantic? Isn't that romantic? And you, and you guys thought your, your promposal was romantic, didn't you? Um, some of you guys, like, you work so hard at these promposals that you guys do. It's, it's pretty impressive. And I, oh, your, mom, yeah, your, your moms probably think of the, the ideas, right? And so, um, like, when I was in high school, the way I asked the girl to prom that I took my senior year... Um, um, I was the manager of the, the girls' soccer team, which is a pretty good position to be in as a guy, right? And so, um, and so I managed the girls' soccer team, and so we're on the way to practice, and I asked this girl to go to prom. That's how I said, you want to go to prom? Sure, okay. That's how we did it. 
And you guys go all out, man. Like, you guys need to save something for your fiancé one day and your creativity. And so, so Mark Antony, he actually gives this, this woman, Cleopatra, when he marries her, this huge library full of books. And, uh, and we also see that um, this city was, was full of entertainment, full of worship, of idols, like many cities in that day. They actually had a spa and a healing center that was dedicated to this god of healing called Asclepius. Can you say Asclepius? Go ahead and say that, Asclepius. Hard to pronounce. And this is what um, this god looked like, a picture of this god. He was a god, the god of healing, and he actually had... Now, go to my, my previous picture. You're, you're, you're spoiling it here. Um, so he had a snake. He was actually... Um, uh, for some reason, they, they saw snake as like the image of healing, and so Asclepius was known as the god of healing. And this is really where... Um, they worshipped him in that day was in Pergamum. That's where he was known to um, to reside in that temple. And so the image of a snake became the image of healing in Pergamum. In fact, if you look closely at the sides of an ambulance, the logo on an ambulance looks like this. And so when I was a kid, I never knew why an ambulance had a snake on the. I was like, why is there a snake on the side of an ambulance? And I just thought it was because if you get bit by a snake. Ambulance comes and gets you, right? That was the connection that I made. But it actually goes back to this, this Greek mythology, this Roman mythology of Asclepius being the god of healing and having the snake, and they associated healing with the snake. And so, um, so this is what uh, this whole thing means. In fact, even if you look at the logo here in town, the Scott and White logo, go to my next slide here, you can see the snakes in the Scott and White logo. You see the snakes in the logo? I never noticed it before until this week. So anytime you see a place of healing, even today, there's this reference to the snake, reference to Asclepius, and this Roman mythology of this guy, this God is the God of healing. And so this whole thing was celebrated in the town of Pergamum, and this was just part of their culture. This is part of what they're about. And so go back with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Let's put that next slide up on the screen. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so again, I read this verse again because I want you to see this. What picture of Jesus do we get in this verse? It says he's got a sword. Now, let's be, let's be obvious here. Um, a sword depicts authority. It depicts someone who's in charge, someone who means business. Um, and so we get this picture of Jesus who's ready to judge, who's ready to punish this church, because this church is compromising in their, in their way of living. And so Jesus says, I am going to come and judge you. We'll get to this passage in a second, but he's, he says, um, he, it, it says he bears a sword because it's trying to show this image of Jesus and he's ready to do business. He's ready to judge and punish these people for their, um, their sin. And so this, this church, is they're doing some things right, but they're doing many things wrong. And Jesus stands over them ready to judge them if he needs to. And I think this goes against, this picture of Christ goes against how many of us view Jesus. Because let's be honest, most of us view Jesus Kind of like this next picture. 
We got to keep up here. I don't know what's going on back there, but here we go. So most of us view Christ like this sort of wimpy Jesus. I mean, Jesus that like goes and, and does like tanning and wears makeup and uses Pantene Pro-V and carries around little baby sheep, right? Like that's the image you have as a child of Christ. And, um, and so we have this image of like wimpy Jesus because we equate grace and mercy with something like um, a wimpy Jesus. But in this passage, we see a picture of Christ that doesn't look like that at all because in this passage, we see a picture of Jesus um, that he is there ready to judge. He is king. He is not just gracious and merciful, but he's also judge. He's also king. And so what I love about these seven letters to the seven churches is that Jesus always communicates one aspect of himself to the church that he's talking to. And it's an aspect that's very relevant to that church. And so this church thinks Jesus is like, you know, kind of like doesn't take sin too seriously. And they need to hear from Christ that, no, he means business. He's calling for repentance. And he takes sin very seriously. And so what does Christ do? He refers to himself as one who bears a sword, who's ready to come and judge those that need to be judged. And so um, if you look at uh, the next verse here, verse 13, it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now at first, when you first read that, this sounds like a rebuke. It sounds like he's saying, I know where you live, right? Like, you live where Satan lives. Like, when I first read it, I thought, that's a pretty harsh rebuke. But what he's really getting at when he says this, he's saying, um, he said, I, I know what it's like where you live. I know what it's like where you live. And so, again, their, their city required emperor worship, just like the previous cities did. Their city required that they bow to the emperor and see the emperor as king, see the emperor as lord. And Jesus is saying, I know where you live, and it's where Satan dwells, meaning that the pagan temples, the idolatry, the worship of the empire, of the emperor, this is where Satan dwells. And so it's not that he's rebuking him here yet. He's actually encouraging them for not denying him. He's actually saying, um, you hold fast my name. You've not denied me, and for that you're, be t- you're to be commended. And so there was this man named Antipas. He was already killed for his faith. They killed him for his faith by taking him and roasting him alive in a brass bowl. Can you imagine dying that way? Just slow. It's like a human crock pot. Just slow, and you've got a chance to deny Christ through the process, but he maintained his faith and did not deny Christ. And so on the one hand, these people are to be commended, but then Jesus brings the backhand in, chapter, in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what's he talking about? This is, he's using some weird words here, Balaam and Balak and the Nicolaitans. I'll explain this very quickly. 
Um, back in Numbers chapter 22 to 24, you can read the full, full story there on your own if you'd like to, but there was a, a false prophet named Balaam. Hey guys, I'm hearing like a lot of chatter like over in this direction, and it's actually distracting me. So do me a favor and just not do that, please. Thank you. Um, Numbers 22 to 24 is where um, we read the story there. And Balaam was a false prophet who led Israel into idol worship, and he also led them into sexual immorality. And um, the teaching of the Nicolaitans is actually similar to that. But, and they, they actually taught that it's possible to be a Christian but to still embrace idolatry. To be a Christian but to still embrace sexual immorality. And so these are people that had one foot in both worlds. They had one foot in Christianity and following Christ, but also one foot in embracing sin and embracing the world around them. And so these people kind of live their life on the fence. And these are people who say, yes, we follow Jesus. We're Christians. They would still name the name of Christ, but they would say, yeah, it's okay to go down to the pagan temple and participate in idolatry. Yeah, it's okay to go to the um, temple prostitutes and engage in sexual immorality and still call yourself a Christian. It's possible to do these things and to live and walk in these ways in unrepentance. It's possible to do that. And this is where um, these Christians found themselves. And so again, this is the opposite of the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church was, they had right doctrine, but they had no love. And Pergamum has some good deeds, but they have bad doctrine. They've withstood persecution from the outside, but they have bad doctrine on the inside. And so on the inside of this church, there's just this cancer growing and this, this um, accommodation to the culture around them in this church. And so this morning, I want to um, talk about how we can be tempted to become just like Pergamum. And so again, Ephesus had right doctrine but no love. But let's look at the issue of, of, of something like homosexuality in our culture today. We discussed this during the Ask Anything series. And um, before I even get into this topic, I know when I say that word, there are some in the room that say, okay, here we go. You're going to be bigoted. You're going to be um, hateful. You're going to be um, mean and, and spiteful. And when I use um, when I speak on these kinds of things, my goal is always to be loving and compassionate, but to still communicate what I think the Bible is saying um, in, in truth. And so we can do both of those. We must do both of those as a Christian, as Christians. And so take the issue like homosexuality in our culture today. It's a big issue, obviously, in our culture right now. And the Ephesians would have called it sin, but they would have lacked compassion and grace, and love, and mercy as they did that. They're the ones that would have been, you know, have no problem calling it sin, but they would have been like, you know, um, unloving possibly, and their tone might have been off. They wouldn't have had compassion, like they should have had compassion. But the church in Pergamum was the opposite. They're the ones that would not call it sin. They wouldn't call certain things sin, but um, because they wanted to be compassionate, and loving, and they would embrace some of the things of the culture so they could be seen as compassionate and loving. So I want you to think about a pendulum. You guys know what a pendulum is, obviously. So think about a pendulum. Think of Ephesus as on one side and Pergamum on the other side. So Ephesus would be to the extreme on this side where they would say that certain things were sin, but they would not show compassion and love to the sinner. And so when some Christians see Christians act like that, 
they make the opposite mistake and they go the way of Pergamum. And it swings all the way over here. Where the people in Pergamum would say, no, okay, let's, let's not, to call that sin, that's just, that's just mean. That's, that's not compassionate. And so let's just kind of back off our stance a bit on some of these things that you see as sin. Because you Christians over here, you're mean. And they are mean. You Christians over here, you're arrogant. And they are arrogant. And so they make the opposite mistake and they begin to embrace sin on this side because they want to be seen as compassionate. And this is, this is the mistake that the people in Pergamum made. And if there's one thing that um, I, I want to get through to you this morning, it's this statement. In our effort to be compassionate, we cannot embrace sin. In our effort to be loving and forgiving and compassionate and grace-filled, we cannot go the way of Pergamum and actually embrace sin as we do that. Because I will tell you that to do that is not compassionate at all. To not call sin, sin, that's not compassion. That's just deception. That's, that's you falling victim to the mistake that the Ephesians made and saying, I want to correct what mis- the, mis- the mistake that they made, but then you make the mistake of the people in Pergamum. And you don't call sin, sin. And you do it under this cloak and this guise of wanting to be compassionate, wanting to be loving. And that is a good motive. You should want that. You should desire that. But you cannot budge on Scripture. You cannot call, you cannot um, see certain things that are sinful as not sinful. You have to understand in your effort to be compassionate, you cannot embrace sin. And so I've got to be careful here because I know that um, I debate if I should tell this story or not. I'm going to go ahead and tell it. But I really feel compelled to tell the story, but there's, there's, a, there's someone, um, you will not know this person, this happened years ago, but several years ago, there was, um, we go to impact camp on Sunday evening, right? And this, this person is actually an impact leader, a, a captain with us. And um, she said, hey, I'm coming down Monday instead of Sunday for impact camp. Mom, bring me down. So that, that's fine. So um, Sunday night, we get to impact camp and we're all there. We get you guys loaded in, and I um, am on Facebook before I go to bed, and I'm looking through, and this girl that I'm referring to, she actually posted pictures of herself um, on the Saturday before this at the Gay Pride Parade in Austin with a bunch of her friends from school. And here I've got, this is an impact captain, and I'm going, man, like, how do I handle this one? They don't teach you that in youth pastor school. There's no, like, study for that, right? And so um, I got my leaders. I said, look, we have this student who's, who's kind of like, I don't know if she's struggling with this. If she is, we want to love her and care for her and walk with her through this. But if she's just going along with some friends and this is how she wants to spend her Saturday, then we need to have a conversation about what she's doing here and, and why this is happening. And so, um, and plus the fact there's, there's Facebook involved and it's public and there are people that are on her team that we're like, they're going to see this and be confused, like really confused. And so she comes to camp on Monday, and we had some conversations. And she said, no, I don't struggle with that. It's just that I have a lot of friends that struggle with this in my school. 
and they've embraced that, that lifestyle. And so um, I know there's a lot of Christians out there that are mean and not compassionate. And, and I just want to show my support for my friends. And we just said, we understand, like, your desire to be compassionate is right and correct. Like, that's what you should be doing. But you see how you crossed the line here. Because when you went to the, the march, when you go to the parade, now you are crossing over into embracing sin. You are celebrating something along with them that we would say is sinful. But we, you should be compassionate. You should be loving. But this is not the way to do that. And she seemed to understand that, and she seemed to get that. It was a hard conversation, but it was one I felt like had its needed effect. And this is exactly what we were talking about. And I know this, I knew this girl before this, and I knew she would struggle in this way, that she would want so badly to show people love and compassion, which is a good thing, that she would make the mistake of Pergamum, and she would try to blend in too much with the culture in her effort to be compassionate. And I totally get it. I understand it. But we, as Christians, we cannot, you cannot go into sin, embracing sin in your effort to be a person of compassion. Because here's what I'll say to you, is we all agree that Jesus is the most compassionate being in the universe, right? And he does not embrace sin. You and I can't be more compassionate than Jesus. And if you're trying to be like Pergamum, then what you're doing is you're saying to Jesus, Jesus, I can be more compassionate than you. That's not an argument that I want to get into. Do, do you? We can't be more compassionate than Jesus himself. And if we trust that he is the most compassionate being on the, in our entire universe, if we trust that, we still have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus still takes sin seriously. He still means business with this church in Pergamum. And so this morning I want to ask you some questions because um, I want to ask you some questions because here's how we can know if, we're, if we can become like Pergamum. I loved Kim's talk last week because she talked about that you don't get to write your own story. That if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, you've got to acknowledge there's this God, there's Jesus who reigns and rules above us. And he's in control. And he gets to say what is sinful and what's not sinful. We don't get to write our own story is how she phrased it last week. Because we don't get to call ourselves Christians and then do whatever we want. And so I want to ask you five or six questions this morning to um, just Help us figure out if, if this is a temptation for us. The first question is this. Is your identity formed by Christ or by culture? These people yielded to the culture. not They didn't yield to Christ. They yielded to culture, not to Christ. For those that are heading off to college, or even those that are not heading off to college, this applies to all of us, will you cave into the culture in the name of compassion, tolerance, love, Will you cave to the culture because you think that you're being compassionate as you do so? And I'm going to tell you that this is one of the biggest deceptions that Satan wants to accomplish in the church. Because Satan always comes as an angel of light. Always comes cloaked with, with righteousness, right? And so, so many Christians fall into this trap. And, and, and Satan loves it because he knows he's got you. 
He knows that he can, he can put the idea of compassion and love and tolerance in the middle of that, and you will fall for it. And you will fall for it like the people in Pergamum did. And so is your identity formed by Christ or by culture around you? The next question, are you compromising sexually? In your life, are you compromising sexually? And I mean runs the gamut, everything. So I'm going to cover some things here um, just to get us thinking about this. This passage says the people in Pergamum were sinning sexually. Jesus cares about our sexuality. He cares about all of your life, your entire life, your entire being. And I'm talking about all kinds of sexual sin, not just going all the way, as it were, but getting physical with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, getting into pornography. Um, And I know I bring up that word quite a bit, and some of you are probably tired of hearing it. But um, as a youth pastor, I tend to err on the side of that I don't trust any of us. I don't. And so I I suspect that many in here struggle. And if you tell me that you don't struggle, I'm surprised. That's when I'm surprised. Some of you guys, you struggle in these areas, and you're afraid to talk about it. You're afraid to talk about it with leaders because you feel like, oh, they're going to be surprised. They're going to be, and let me tell you, we sin. We have sinned. There's nothing that's going to surprise us. There's nothing you can say that's going to surprise us. And so I always assume that we struggle, that all of us do on some level. So we start there. I don't start with like, oh, what? You struggle with what? That's not how we, we deal with things here. We don't deal with things like that here. And so we assume that you struggle. And I, I say that because we're here to help. We're here to shepherd you and walk with you um, as we struggle together. And other questions that I want to ask you is, is when it comes to sexuality, is, is, uh, is the other person, the rela- are they putting pressure on you sexually? Is he putting pressure on you sexually? Is she, because yes, that can happen too, is she putting pressure on you sexually? And I'll tell you this, that if if that's happening in the relationship, my encouragement is to end the relationship. You you should not, you you can't play games with this. You've got to get out of that relationship. You've shown that you both aren't mature enough to handle that relationship. You've got to get out of the relationship. And in our culture today, sexual pressure can happen in all kinds of ways. And, And I have dealt with this in this youth group before, in my discussions with some people, is that, um, is, is that person asking you to send photos? of yourself to them that are inappropriate. We live in a culture today where you can pressure someone sexually without even being in the same room with them. It's crazy. It's crazy. And so is that person putting any kind of sexual pressure on you? And in this, in this uh, culture, in Pergamum, um, people are living out this sexual sin like it's just no big deal. Like it's just no big deal. And so my goal this morning is is if this is your struggle, my goal, listen to me, my goal this morning is not to shame you. It is to convict you. And there's a difference. Shame is all about you. How people see me, oh, I don't want them to know, like they're going to look down on me, they're going to think I'm horrible. Shame is all about you. Conviction is all about Jesus. 
conviction is about Jesus and recognizing that, yes, I've sinned while I have sinned, I don't forget about Jesus because he paid for it on the cross. And I can go to him. I can go to him. And he is my redeemer. He is my savior. He is my, um, he is the one I go to with my sin. Because shame, with shame, you just stay in a pool of shame and it's all about you. But conviction is all about Jesus. And it takes it off of yourself and puts it on the one that it's put on at the cross, and it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. And so conviction is good for us. Conviction is what Christ wants. Repentance is what Christ wants. Shame just leads to some kind of a false repentance. Shame leads to this place of, yeah, yeah, I know what I did was bad, and I, yeah, okay, I want to forget about it. I want to move on. I don't want anybody to know. It's just it's too hard. It's just too much. That's shame at work. And it feels like repentance for a while. Yeah, I kind of feel, ba- feel bad about it. But conviction is something different. Convic- conviction actually leads to repentance. A recognition that, yes, it was sinful, and it was bad, and it violated that person, and it violated who, God's holiness. But there's Jesus, there's grace, there's compassion, there is love, there's mercy. And you can't get to that without having conviction. You can't get to that without having true repentance. And so our goal is repentance, not just, not shame, not shame. I also want to ask you the question, are you compromising socially? Do you do things you know are sin just to fit in? Because in this day in Pergamum, they would have these idol feasts. And it says that um, these idol feasts were part of pagan temple worship. And just listen to the list of things they would do at their, at their pagan festivals. So they would have um, lots of drink, people getting drunk a lot. Um, they have lots of sexuality at their parties. And when you think about that, this, this was written like 2,000 years ago, right? Just think of how like uncreative we are in our sin. So 2,000 years ago, they would get drunk and have sex. Today, what do people do for partying? Get drunk and have sex, right? That's this. That's all we can come up with. That's it. We are so boring. We are so not creative in our sin, right? That's all we got. And so if someone says to you, yeah, Christianity is is boring and, and this looks like a life of fun, I'm going, well, actually, you know what? It's been the same thing since the beginning of time and people are still enslaved to it they're still doing that in an effort to find something meaningful and we find ourselves in the same place and also you can you can take from this passage that why do you think the christians listen why do you think the christians felt compelled to go to these places do you think there was some social pressure, like some social pressure to fit in? Like if I, if I don't go here, if I don't go there and do what they're doing, then, then we may not be accepted. Like I would imagine that things have not changed that much. That in that day there was social pressure to fit in. And they went to these places because that's what the culture was doing in the same ways that you're tempted to go to the same kinds of places. Next question. Are you compromising biblically? 
do you pick and choose what to believe from the Bible? When the Bible says something that offends you, you just throw it out. Do you compromise biblically in how you read the Bible? Tim Keller says this next quote. He says, if God is perfect and we are not, then at some point the Bible will offend us. So if there's a sovereign God, a God who is perfect and holy and righteous, and he's written his revelation for us, and we're not perfect, we're not holy, we're not righteous, then at some point that perfect God is going to grate up against us, and it's going to offend us. It's going to hurt. There's going to be friction. There's going to be things that we say, I don't like that. I don't really believe that, I don't think. That offends me. I don't, I don't like that he says that. Because some, we can know the truth, but sometimes we just don't like it. We just don't like the truth. And the last question, do you profess a faith that you're not practicing? Again, following Christ affects all of your life. And so what does Christ tell them to do? Look at verse 16. He says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this verse is really clear. What does Jesus Christ want? He wants repentance. He wants repentance. This is what he's after. He's not messing around. He's not to be taken lightly. He wants repentance. And for those who don't repent, what does he say? He says, I'm going to come war against them. This verse is also clear that whenever you and I walk and live in sin, that at some point Jesus Christ the one that we see as only gracious and only loving and only compassionate, at some point, he comes against us. And him coming against us is one of the best gifts that he can give us because he's trying to draw us back to himself. And it says he comes against them, he wars against them if they don't repent. And so for those that do repent, here's what he says in the next passage. It says, to the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And again, this is confusing language. He's using some strange words. Hidden manna? What is that? And he says a white stone and a new name? What is he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. Look back. If you can recall the manna in the wilderness that came from God, that was sustenance to the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So Jesus is saying, for the one who follows me and continues to follow me, for the one who's repentant, I'm going to give you sustenance. As you're in this desert, in this wilderness, I am going to give you just what you need. As you're living in this culture, and it feels dry and barren, I'm going to give you just what you need. So Jesus is our sustenance. Then he also says, I'm going to give you a white stone. What's a white stone? Well, some people think that in that day, in a court proceeding, if you were guilty, they would give you a black stone um, showing your guilt. If you were innocent, they would give you a white stone showing your innocence. And so Jesus is saying that for the one who is repentant, for the one who stays with me to the end, to that one, I will give you a white stone saying you are innocent. This is your righteousness. I'm going to give you your righteousness. 
And then lastly, he says, I'm going to give you a new name. And so Jesus transforms us. Jesus is our sustenance. He is our innocence. And he also transforms us. He sets us free. And so this morning, I'm just going to pray for you, and you guys can discuss here at the end. But go ahead and close your eyes and just pray. I want you to just kind of think reflectively right now as we talk through all this. And just sit quietly and just be thinking about the words of Revelation chapter 2 and the city of Pergamum and Christ's words for that city, that church. And this morning, I just want to invite you to respond. Just close your eyes and just be thinking and meditating on today's passage. And I want to just speak firstly to those who, maybe you're someone who you would not call yourself a Christian. You would say, I'm definitely not a Christian. I'm thinking about it. I'm exploring the idea, but I'm definitely not yet. And this morning, um, if something I've said has just sparked some conviction and began to resonate with you, and you feel like, you know, I'm convicted by this, and I believe this, I really want to follow Christ, I believe that he's God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. And I want the kind of um, new start that's being talked about in this passage. I want to get off the throne of my life, and I want to put him on the throne of my life. I want him to assume the throne of my life. If that's where you're at this morning, and you, for the first time in your life, you want to come to know Christ Surrender your life to Christ. I'm just going to ask you to, just where you sit, just quietly be praying and just tell God that. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that um, we confess with the mouth. And let your first time you confess to him, just be through prayer, just confess to him that this is what I want, Christ. I want to follow you. I want to give my life to you. I want to surrender my life to you. And just tell him that in your own way uh, through prayer. That's what you want today. And maybe you're someone who, you're a believer, you call yourself a believer, but you've, you've been living and walking in sin in certain areas of your life, and you felt convicted by um, what Christ said to the church in Pergamum. And this also is a chance for you to repent this morning. Just quietly where you sit, just be talking to God, talking to Christ, reflect, reflecting on what's been said this morning. And just pray to Him and, and confess to Him your conviction. Pray to him and confess to him, Jesus, I don't want to be slave to these things anymore. I don't want to accommodate to the culture around me. I want to follow you, and I want to be a person who's a light in the culture, not someone who is consumed by the culture. Just pray and tell him that this morning as as you sit in your seat. I'm going to pray for you. God, we just thank you for um, that you're a God who you are grace-filled, you are compassionate, you are loving, and yet we also know that you, you bear a sword, you're a judge, you're a king, you're a ruler. We pray, God, that you'd help us to understand that truth, Lord, that, that profound truth of who you are. We pray, God, that um, if anyone in this room does not know you as Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for them. They would come to know you today. We pray that, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. I just want to encourage you that if you're someone who you, you came in not knowing Christ, not following Christ, and today you decide to follow him. I want to know about that. Come and find me and talk about that with us. Go ahead and discuss um, at your tables um, the questions there, and you guys can be dismissed after that.